Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer. And I'm Christine Uh, Jones. And I'm Scott, too. I mean, Scott Higginbotham. That's me. (laughs) So today we are going to be talking about some fun, controversial topics that have been uh, sort of in the news lately. Uh, One is that there's a new project out called the Bible for Normal People. And uh, I had Christine and Scott look at this website and kind of check it out. One of the main guys uh, who helps run this, I believe, is a professor. Is he at Yale? Does that does that Harvard. sound right? Harvard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I, so I was thinking Harvard, and then I second guessed myself. I was like, no, it must be Yale. That's, that's why one I of don't. Those. That's why I don't test well. By the way, I'm <laughs> like, I'm like, no, that can't be the right answer. But um, uh, anyway, these guys are putting out uh, a number of books, and they're putting out. Uh, sort of like a daily devotion and daily readings and short videos and all kinds of things trying to explain scripture. Uh, But they're doing so from a very academic perspective, which is nothing wrong with doing it from an academic perspective. However, they're also doing it with their own um, bent and leaning towards how to interpret a lot of the text, which causes concern for me. Uh, I think I sent Christine and Scott both a video where Uh, They're talking about Jesus and his humanity, but so much so that they're almost kind of like, and he's not really divine. And um, this could be very problematic. Um, I mean, I would say it's problematic for those in the faith who have a uh, orthodox view of the person of Christ. Uh, But I think it could also be very problematic in the fact that I think this website can actually, even though it's called the Bible for normal people, can actually be very confusing and cause a lot of people to stumble in their faith. So, Christine, what are some of your initial thoughts on the website and uh, sort of what they're doing with this project? Oh, well, my initial thoughts are I love it. I I love Peter Enns. I like a lot of his other work. I really appreciate that they're trying to bring discussions of the Bible out of some of the evangelical um, framework that has really controlled a lot of the way we discuss the Bible publicly um, and particularly in America the way we the way we talk about the Bible. So I I think the project is really commendable that they're trying to to do um, I mean they're trying to just kind of correct some things. I mean you said that they that as they do their biblical teaching they're doing so with a particular angle but of course everybody does that. Sure. And so part of what they're trying to do is I think provide a corrective to the kinds of teaching that have been happening that for so long that many people take those those points of view and those interpretations for granted especially those of us who grew up within the church we we have no choice but to come at the scripture from a kind of predetermined angle because it's what we hear from the like if you're a cradle the, the phrase is a cradle to grave in the in the Episcopal Church they talk about being a cradle to grave Episcopal you'll, so if you were there from the time you were a baby you're getting certain perspectives um, you know before you even have the time to know what that means um, and those perspectives can't help but color your interpretation of scripture um, because this is just how our brains work so I appreciate the project they're trying to offer some perspectives that are not often discussed um, especially among evangelicals um, so I like it um, I also I also hear what you're saying that in so in the example you mentioned where and I actually read a blog entry about the same topic and didn't see the video. I forgot about the video, but I read a blog entry about it. And in the blog entry, so I don't know if they do this in the video, but in the blog entry, they try to explain that um, that we have de-emphasized Jesus's humanity in our discussions of Christ. Mm-hmm. So that true. right. And so so even though we say that we we believe that he, that Christ was fully God and fully human, we tend to emphasize the God part and not consider the aspects of his humanity that are really important to you, maybe understanding him better. And so it's it's possible in the video that that they went a little farther than they did in the in the blog entry. But in the blog entry, I understood, okay, the Again, this is kind of offering a corrective. Could it be taken by some people as going too far in the other direction? Yeah, maybe it could. It depends on um, how much of a corrective you think is sort of needed in that discussion. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'd like to also just point out some a quick clarification of what I said a minute ago. I said they're doing it from an academic perspective. Uh, I, obviously, I'm an academic. Christine, you're an academic. Scott, yeah. you're an academic. Yeah. So um, it wasn't to say that academics is wrong or bad, uh, but rather what I meant by that was they're taking a very analytical approach to it mm -hmm. rather than a pastoral or discipleship type approach. Um, although... Uh, Christine, if if uh, if they are doing as you say, as you see it, uh, where they're sort of correcting stuff, there would be an element of discipleship to that. So it, there absolutely is an element of discipleship. Now, I, I mean, I'm taking this from his. So one of his books, the Bible tells me so, um, where he kind of goes through his uh, his kind of process of understanding scriptures in a different way. Um, it certainly comes across as pastoral, at least. Um, at least is a really important part of his faith journey. So I would say that a big reason that Peter Enns would still call himself a believer and the reason he is a, a Christian is because he was able to learn to see the Bible in a different way, to interpret it a little bit differently, to consider it from a different angle than that which he had been raised. And if, if he hadn't been able to do that, um, many parts of his faith would have just collapsed because they were so dependent on certain views of of scripture mm -hmm. so i think there is a pastoral element um the the goal is to help people strengthen their faith in jesus so that their faith in jesus doesn't fall apart because now they have learned about this i don't know historical aspect of the scripture that kind of ch completely changes a, a teaching about it that they had always heard well maybe you, that the faith doesn't have to fall apart because of that. And so I, th I think that there is a pastoral element. Very yeah. good. Scott, what are some of your initial thoughts? Well, I think, you know, there's always an interplay between the assumptions that you bring to the text and the text itself in the sense that um, you assume things when you come to the Bible, whether you assume that it's divinely inspired or that it's a merely a collection of, you know, human historic documents. You assume things like um, when you learn about Jesus, you assume that he's one of us, or you assume that, um, you know, there's a, there's a cult perspective that has come forward that Jesus was not always divine, but that Jesus was, you know, given divine qualities when he was baptized or um, that, you know, in, in antiquity, there was also the view that uh, Jesus was not even fully human at all. He just appeared to be human, and he was really more of a ghost among us than anything else. And um, and even insofar as denying the historicity or, you know, bodily resurrection of Jesus, I mean, those are the kinds of things. So you make assumptions when you come to the Bible, but then the Bible also has a way of shaping what assumptions we make after having read it. And it's just this circular thing that, that right. keeps going around and around. Um, there are some things that are debatable and that don't have to always be a hundred percent agreed upon. Um, and you could still be a Christian. For example, um, I, I happen to not believe in the essentiality of water baptism. I don't think that is essential to your salvation, but I'm not going to call somebody who believes that, you know, not a brother, you know, or a sister in Christ. We may have a, we may have a disagreement on how to interpret a biblical text about that, but then there are some things that are cut and dry and are part of historic biblical orthodoxy that, you know, you have to, I mean, these are some things that are affirmed and um, I'm teaching a new Testament class right now for a university. And one of the things we talked about last week is the beginning of first Corinthians 15, where Paul says, you know, these things I'm delivering to you as they were delivered to me. Here they are. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he rose again, according to the scriptures that uh, he appeared to 12. And then he appeared to the 500. These are all things that Christians without fail for 2000 years have affirmed to be true mm -hmm. and are, I mean, they are historically essential. If you throw one of those things out, then 
you know, you're starting to get outside of the circle of what it means to be a Christian. So yeah. all of that said, I mean, that's that's a real big setup for me to say like this. There are some things that I saw on the website that I'm kind of eh, about. I, I'm on the fence on whether or not I would say you stepped outside of Christian orthodoxy, but I would also say but Christian orthodoxy is a line that has to be towed in order to say, yeah, we're still in this historic camp of who we are. And that that line is not really up for debate in some places. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think that's sort of where I, I landed when I looked through the website, I, I uh, browsed some of their articles, read a few of their blogs. And I would find myself agreeing with some things, disagreeing with some things, and wishing in a few places they would have presented more perspectives. Hmm. And so, uh, and I think that's where sort of, I guess, the academic side of me comes in. You know, when I teach systematic theology and we talk about, say, the essential or non-essential nature of water baptism, we also talk about believer's baptism versus infant baptism. And we talk about the means of baptism. Is it immersion? Is it sprinkling? And I try to present all the views to my students so that they can make their own informed decision about what they think is most scriptural. Now, with that being said, um, clearly the, you know, this website's not intended to be a seminary education. And so I shouldn't probably expect them to present every perspective for everything. Uh, and, and Christine, I do like what you had to say about uh, this idea of, you know, look, sometimes people get in this rut where they, their faith is in jeopardy yeah. because they've been taught certain things and those things aren't true, aren't really scriptural, aren't the only way to read the text mm-hmm. and are causing people to have a faith crisis. And so in the event that that's the case, something like this could be very helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I, I think they say in the like a kind of purpose behind the website is to be a place for people who, who have these questions and have not felt that they have a safe place to bring them up. So if they are one sided, which I do think they probably do err on one side over the other, it's probably to the side of those those kinds of things that perhaps people would have felt really unsafe bringing up in other church contexts in the past. Right. Yeah. Makes so, sense. Yeah. Uh, and I think this sort of leads into perhaps the second part of our discussion, and that's really, uh, and you've already hit on this a little bit, Scott, but mm-hmm. what sort of makes something heresy um, <laughs> or, you know, what what crosses that line? Uh, I have, uh, you know, been teaching theology now for about 20 years and love teaching theology. Uh, and then I have certain positions. And I was told recently that I was teaching heresy because I said, I don't think you can lose your salvation. And I thought, Whoa. well, that's that's not really a heretical issue. I mean, there are Christians who believe you can and Christians who believe you can't, but they're both still Christians. Nobody is a heretic because they teach one view or the mm. other on that. And, uh, you know, in the same way, um, just like with baptism, you're not a heretic if you have a different view on baptism. Uh, right. You know, you're not a right. heretic if you choose to believe in a literal six-day creation versus a non-literal view of creation. Um, if you think that Jesus isn't God and that he didn't go to the cross, that's a bigger issue. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this becomes important when you find not only people calling others heretics because they don't agree 100% with all of their beliefs, um, but it also becomes a problem when you start finding churches making decisions uh, around certain doctrinal issues uh, to say disfellowship or other things like that when yeah. stuff isn't really essential. And uh, uh, just to give a quick um, illustration here, um when it comes to heretical type issues, you know, what knocks someone out of the faith or what is unorthodox, it's typically stuff that uh, is believed across most every denomination. You know, um, the idea that there's God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, every legitimate Christian group believes that. And um, when it comes to defining the Trinity, there's some variance. And I think that's okay because it's a very difficult concept to grasp in general. But nobody's going, well, God, the father's God and God, the son's God, but the Holy Spirit, he's out. Uh, People that are teaching that aren't teaching Christianity. Right. Uh, And in the same way, you know, you look at issues like the Bible. 
Uh, you know, you could believe the Bible is infallible, or you could believe that it's not infallible and still believe the things that it teaches. Yes. Um, but at the same time, they are important issues. And I think that's why we have a lot of different denominations. But even within denominations, there's variants. And nobody has all the correct beliefs. You know, I have some wrong beliefs. You guys have some wrong beliefs. Everyone listening has some wrong beliefs. Mm -hmm. I know it's hard. It's hard to believe that because <laughs> you wouldn't believe it if you knew it was wrong. And so we all think our beliefs are the right ones. That's why we hold them. Right. But now look, I happen to really <laughs> like my wrong beliefs. So. Exactly. <laughs> we all like yep. our wrong beliefs, but um, that doesn't make them true. And um, right. unfortunately, you know, we live in a world where we're presented with lots of different truth claims and we are to use our own minds to classify, you know, is this claim true or is this claim I'm hearing false? And as it turns out, because we're fallible people, sometimes we misclassify stuff. And so I think websites like the Bible for normal people are good in the sense that they sort of make you rethink things, look at things from a different perspective and ask yourself, have I been thinking the right way about this? Uh, mm -hmm. I think this is also the value of reading theology books or reading commentaries on the Bible. I mean, I'll think one way about a passage of scripture and then I'll go pick up a commentary and read about it and they have something different to say. And I think, oh, well, have I been missing the point of this? So I'll go look at a couple more commentaries. And sometimes I find that there's a, a variation or a range of views on this particular passage. Sometimes I'll find I've been teaching this wrong. And sometimes I'll find, no, that commentary got it wrong. Everybody else is saying what I've hmm. you know typically thought. And so uh, we have to make our own decisions. Uh, but recently, two mega churches were in the news for decisions that they have recently made. Well, sort of. Uh, one was a decision a church made. Church Home in California uh, chose to rehire a pastor uh, recently who had stepped down a number of years ago because he was accused of sexually abusing someone. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, um, it was believed that those uh, the accusations were true. And the church uh, kept the victim in the church, but has now decided to rehire this minister. And I think it's in a different position, but still rehire him. And uh, this victim has said, I don't agree with this. Don't do that. And um, they've essentially said, we want you to forgive him. It's been time and he's repented. Let's bring him back in. And so mm -mm. obviously this doesn't, doesn't bide well for people who, you know, believe in, um, uh, I don't know, you know, rights of women and uh, other things of that uh, nature. People but... on the listening on the podcast can't see my face, so I just feel I need to describe how <laughs> much face palming and wincing is happening over here. And yeah. as somebody who can see Christine, she is literally face palming. I mean, mm, that's what yeah, that's what was yeah. happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so this church Ugh. has made this decision. It's not an orthodox decision in the sense of are they still Christian or not. But it is a big decision that affects the lives of potentially thousands of people. Uh, it affects how people view the church and how it sees abuse. It affects the church in how people view Christians as, you know, especially with all the, you know, stereotypes of ministers being, you know, pedophiles and other things of that nature. Uh, and uh, I think that it also... It also bears with it, you know, sort of this idea of victim shaming and and a lack mm -hmm. of justice. Um, before we talk more about this, I want to say one thing. Um, Scott and I are both Southern Baptists, um, and uh, Christine, you have been very familiar with the Baptist tradition. Um, um, yeah, I was but, raised a Southern yeah. Baptist, so I'm, uh, I'm yeah. In uh, twenty, <clears throat> was it, it was I think it was in twenty twenty. Um, the Southern Baptist uh, adopted a resolution that any church that hires someone accused of or convicted of um, sexual abuse will be disfellowshipped immediately mm. for that. And a couple of weeks ago, they kicked the church out because they knowingly hired someone who had been convicted. That's good. Um, and so yeah. our denomination does not stand for that any longer. This This church, I think, is an independent church, so there's not really any accountability there. But 
Christine, what are some of your thoughts on, uh, if you can get your head out of your hand for a second, what are some of your thoughts what are on some this of my situation? Thoughts? Um, it's, I don't know, reprehensible, terrible, puts other people in, in danger. It's, it's wrong is what it is. Yeah. And it gives um, someone a platform to do everything all over again. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And I, I appreciate that you're you're being kind and saying, well, you know, this isn't necessarily a question of orthodoxy, but it is a question of this. But I would say th there there is sort of a when I'm trying to determine what is orthodox and what isn't, I kind of have two sources. One are are the creeds. I look at a couple of creeds to kind of guide me, and the other one is Christ's repeated and simple command to love one another. And I, I just think... really don't see how we're loving uh, victims of sexual abuse when we put their abusers back in power. Yeah, I, I, think I mean, that astute. shouldn't even need to be said, but I, it, it's just terrible. Well, when I said it's not an issue of orthodoxy, I'm thinking the people that are members of that church haven't lost their salvation, you know, right. that kind of I stuff. Or even the people who are in the church or potentially, you know, leaders of it are still Christians. Uh, but they're making a horrible, 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 reprehensible decision that yeah. should never have even been on the table to discuss in the first place. Uh, but of course, the counter to that is, but forgiveness, but forgiveness. So how do we, how do we... Uh... <laughs> Talk about that question. Well, How, um... I think the issue of forgiveness on that end is that, yeah, I mean, forgiveness in the Bible is pulling up a seat at the table in fellowship and being able to say, I forgive you for the wrongs that you've committed against me or against someone else. I mean, that's that's forgiveness. But I, I think there's also a practical level of forgiveness, too, that I may forgive you for having killed a member of my family, but that doesn't mean I'm going to let you stay at my house. Right. You know, I mean, there's. So you would uh, say there's I'm, consequences. Mm -hmm. I would say that there are consequences. And yeah. in the sense, if you have some, if you know what, I, I kind of, I come out of a camp that if you are uh, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you get accused uh, well, okay. I, let, let me back off that. If you get, uh, if if you get convicted, I guess. And I mean, I'm not trying to use this in a legal sense, but if you if you get convicted of some wrongdoing in that capacity, um, then yeah, you've you've that ship has sailed on your mm -hmm. ability to publicly minister. I mean, you may as certainly as part of leadership or something like that in a church. That may be different from somebody who has something in their past before they were a Christian, repented of it, was publicly, you know, uh, repentant of, of it and it pushed away and said, that is the old me. And they've turned mm -hmm. a page, they've got accountability around them. Then, you know, maybe in some capacity that that might be allowed. But if at some point you were in leadership in a church and you were abusive to someone else, then by no means do, I, I mean, you don't just walk back in even a few years later and say, well, you know what, that's all under, all done. I'm fine. <laughs> and y'all just need to accept it. That's just, I mean, that's not just, that's just not, that's not bad orthodoxy. That's just straight up stupid. Right. Yeah. It's, it's irresponsible. Humanity. Yeah. It's irresponsible. It's yeah. idiotic. It's moronic. I mean, really, <laughs> whoever's in leadership in this place that made this decision and thought it was a good idea really needs to check and see if, if their brain is still attached because that's just <laughs> it, it's just it's reprehensible and it stupid. is yeah and yeah. for you guys okay. at home who when you're listening to christine talk a minute ago uh scott kindly muted his microphone as he was clapping and saying hooray yes yes to the things that she was saying <laughs> yeah. um you know uh I, I feel like it's just it's it's very poor practice. It's in bad taste. It it brings disrepute upon the church in general. Yeah. And it brings a bad name to Christianity. It brings a bad name to Christ. And this kind of thing should absolutely not be happening. And um, you know, obviously we can't do anything about it because they're, you know, it's their church and they can do what they want. Uh, but I think it's important for other churches to stand up and say, that's not us. We disagree with this. And um, I think even to the point, I mean, you know, I think that it's good for the world to see Christians getting along. 
But I also think it's good for the world to see Christians standing up for what is right. And when a church does something that is clearly this wrong, I think the world needs to see other churches standing up and saying, this is not us. We don't agree with this. This shouldn't be happening. And these guys should honestly, they should be ashamed. They should repent. And uh, the person should be probably stripped of his title again. Uh, But additionally, those who signed off on rehiring him might should also... um, have some kind of consequence. I mean, you know, maybe they should resign. Maybe they should mm-hmm. go to counseling and, uh, you know, figure out why they think that it's okay to to put people in this kind of a situation. Uh, but mm-hmm. whatever the case is, there there should be some kind of consequence there. And forgiving someone for doing something is one thing, but you know, that doesn't mean you put yourself back in the same kind of position again when you you know forgive someone. I mean, if right. if you know someone who's a pathological liar and you say, I've forgiven you for lying, but then you start immediately believing everything they say again, well, that's <laughs> kind of foolish. You know, yeah. they have to rebuild your tr- trust with you. And uh, there are some wounds and some actions that people commit that there's really no rebuilding trust from. Hmm. And uh, when someone has taken, uh, you know, use their position of power, spiritual power, especially, uh, to take advantage of others, they forfeit the right to have that power. Um, it's, and, it, and that's risk scriptural, of, by the way, at the, mm-hmm. at the risk of, of undermining something here. And I don't mean to, cause I don't mean to necessarily equate these two things, but I mean, you know, we're talking about a sexual abuse issue, but let's think about something that's a little bit different. If you had somebody who was a minister at a church and they had embezzled $50,000, would you put them back in a position where they would have any kind of access to money? Of course you wouldn't. And I mean, if if that's how we would treat people when we're talking about finances, how much more valuable are actual human beings? Right. And so it's just, it's mind, it's mind boggling to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. All right. So at the sake of potentially seeing Christine face palm again, <laughs> the other thing that was in the news this week uh, deals with the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, the executive committee meeting and disfellowshipping five churches. One was disfellowshipped because a pastor was hired who had been convicted of abuse. And they said, again, because of what they, resol- you know, the resolution they made a couple of years ago, that person's out, uh, right. that church is out, right? So, uh, but they disfellowshipped four other churches, three of which had female lead pastors, and the other was Saddleback. Saddleback was the second largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention with over 30,000 members which um, I have a lot of thoughts on that in general, differently than what we're talking about today. Uh, but um, they hired a new pastor when Rick Warren retired a few months ago. They hired a new pastor, and they brought he and his wife on as co-pastors together. And because they ordained her, they got disfellowshipped. And uh, what that simply means is these churches are still churches, but they are no longer associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. The reason that was given was that the Southern Baptist Convention adopted a faith and message, which is like a confession. Um, it's or like it was, I mean, Baptists call it a confession, but it's the equivalent of a creed, um, kind of a long creed, if you will, uh, from uh, for the Baptist perspective. And they adopted this in the year two thousand, and in it, it states that God. Uh, in, in intends expects for senior pastors to be men. Uh, this gets into the idea of complementarianism versus egalitarianism. In complementary theology, you believe that uh, men and women are created equal, but God's designed them for different roles. In egalitarian theology, you believe that men and women are created equal, but they are both able to hold and do all of the same offices in the church. And um, there's obviously, you know, a big divide on that and just Christ- Christendom in general. Mm-hmm. But um, the question is, was it right for these churches to be disfellowshipped over this particular issue with it being a non-essential? One pastor emailed me after the fact, and all his email said was, so much for sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
you know, but then at the same time, there have to be, you know, for different groups of believers, standards put in place. Like if you're going to be in fellowship with us, we have to have some agreed upon practices. Sure. So Scott, what are some of your initial thoughts on this? Um, you know, it's, I, the, the first thing that I think about is in Baptist life, we're not really good with defining terms necessarily in a, um, in a, ecclesiastical sense. So it's not like every church uses the same definition of the same words across the board, even if they Mm -hmm. intend to. And the, the thing that I think of with reference to this is you'll, you have churches that ordain pastors all the time. And there are churches that have youth pastors and children's pastors. And, uh, you know, maybe somebody out there has, you know, maintenance pastor or something like that, administrative pastors. Um, and it, at, at some point, those individualistic definitions of terms were going to come back and, and bite churches along the way. Sure. And so just because you attach, I mean, some Christian denominations, when you hear the word pastor, you have a very specific denominational wide understanding of what that term means. Uh, it's not always like that in Baptist life in general and Southern Baptist life in particular. So it feels a little disingenuous to me for the Southern Baptist Convention to disfellowship a church based on a title without asking what the role is when some of the some of the churches that are you know, towing the line in Southern Baptist life are also, you know, nobody's asking, well, I mean, you still call them, it's a woman and she's a pastor. She happens to be a children's pastor, but you've been calling her that for 20 years. So, I mean, (laughs) what, what are you doing? It's just, it's, I I don't know. It feels like moving goalposts to some degrees. And I, I think it's frustrating. I think the other thing is as somebody who's been a Baptist for you know, probably since I was born, mm-hmm. I, I think one of the the other issues that I have is what about church autonomy? How do mm-hmm. I mean churches don't churches get to function on their own? And then I also have a question about this was done by an executive committee, and from what I understood from when I took church and denomination a long time ago, was that the Southern Baptist Convention technically only exists when the churches are gathered together. Now I may be off on my polity here. But it seems to me, if you're going to just disfellowship churches, I thought that was a thing that had to come to the floor when the convention was in session and not something that can just be done. I mean, I'm not saying that it was done arbitrarily, but it seems like that has to be done when a much broader slice of the convention is together, which is going to lead to debate because that's what Baptists like to do. We like to fight and debate with each other all the time. Mm, Yeah, It's questions of practice, questions of, can you really do that? Some things like that, that I I don't have the ready answer to, and I'm open to correction. Well, I was a Baptist my whole life up until um, just the last few years. Um, And a big part of my reason for leaving is because these issues surrounding women in leadership that had been in previous Baptist spaces I had been in had been left open to individual churches and organizations to sort of decide on for themselves have become more and more um, set in stone, uh, kind of a, a line in the sand as we're seeing here with the Southern Baptist Convention. And so I felt that I could no longer um, be in those spaces because it didn't line up with what I believe. Um, I served as a music minister in a Baptist church and my official title was director of music ministry, lest we even call me a minister. (laughs) Although director, I think implies a little bit more um, authority. (laughs) They're trying to avoid authority. Uh, um, You know, I wrestled with these issues a long time and there's a lot, a lot that we could say about um language like pastor versus minister and all of that that is that has its own problem i think for me what became difficult is i would be in these spaces i would have conversations with the pastors and the people in charge and they would say to me oh well we don't actually hold to the 2000 baptist faith and message here we hold to the other one and that's something that's sort of allowed we can still call our ourselves Baptists mm-hmm. without going with this newer version. So now I think in in disfellowshipping these churches, um, the SBC has made it super clear where they stand. And, you know, at least um, 
at least that makes it explicit and obvious and now some decisions have to be made I Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if there's going to be a number of churches saying, you know what, we're going to disfellowship ourselves over this. Right. And, I kind of hope um, so. you know, <laughs> it, I think for me, it, you know, I get frustrated because I go, well, if you look at a music minister or a music pastor or a worship minister or a worship pastor, mm -hmm. the job descriptions are the exact same. Right. If you look at a That's children's right. pastor or a children's minister, the job descriptions are the exact same. And when we say, you know, you know, the role of pastor, it's, you know, you're right, Scott, it's not well-defined. No. And in fact, it became an issue last year at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, and people were saying, what do you mean you guys don't know how to define pastor? Well, it's because people are using about 10 different uh, definitions for the term and what it mm -hmm. entails. Right. And um, the other thing that has struck me is really odd about this Um you know, a few years ago, the Houston Chronicle published this article about abuse in Southern Baptist churches. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the Southern Baptists went out of their way to, uh, well, let me rephrase that. There were some that didn't, but there were some that went out of their way to hear from the victims, give them a platform and make something happen. Yeah. And the church members on the whole of the SBC came together and said, this is something we need to deal with. Mm -hmm. And it was like for the first time in 50 years, the Southern Baptists made some really good steps forward in their understanding, treatment, respect, and whatnot for women. Mm -hmm. And then um, within a year of doing all that, they make this decision and it's like, oh, so I guess we're taking a step <laughs> backwards again, sort of. And yeah. I think that for me, the way that this is going to be perceived by those outside the Southern Baptist Convention is, see, they really don't care about women that much. I, they yeah, don't value I agree, women. Scott. And, and it bothers me that, that you, you mentioned that one church was disbanded because of the, of the past abuse and that the others had to do with women in leadership. And maybe this is an illogical way to look at it, but it sure does seem like they're putting those two issues on the same level. Mm -hmm. which they're just not. Right. <laughs> yeah. These are not at the same level no. at all. The other no. thing that concerns me um, is that the Southern Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which, I mean, I have read, I think that I'm in agreement with it uh, for the actual you know, things that it says, but there are some things in it that are unclear. And I think some of this becomes, uh, uh, there's a lot of issues in it that are unclear. Uh, because you have to know the context in which they, those statements were made to understand them, which is the same with the 1960s uh, confession. Uh, there are some things that people didn't like that it said, but if you looked at it in the context of the 60s, the way it was being interpreted in the 2000s was inaccurate um, uh, based on the context from the 60s. Hmm. Uh, and so I think rewriting confessions every few years is probably not a bad idea anyway, just because you want to use modern, you know, current language. Sure. But um the the confession from 2000 was um, a lot of the work done on that was done uh, under the leadership of Paige Patterson. And Patterson has come under scrutiny in the last few years for covering up two abuse cases at different seminaries where he was president. Mm -hmm. And in one case, telling a victim not to call the police, uh, which is wrong in every circumstance and situation, mm -hmm. you know. And so... Uh, you're you're saying, hey, we're we're holding to this document that was promoted by people who have um, incorrect, inappropriate views of women and who devalue women consistently and have devalued women consistently in their ministries. And uh, I think that becomes very problematic for for that as well. Uh, yeah. So I see the I see the Baptists having to rewrite that in the near future. Just if for nothing else, just to get it out from under that weight. Well, can and we, go ahead. Go uh, ahead so Scott. Can we also, I mean, I think this is also important that in Baptist life in particular, since that's kind of what's on the table here, Baptist in Baptist life, our confessions of faith have been reacting to something mm. instead of being proactive for something. Uh -huh. And so if, you know, if, if you're a, Baptist faith and message 2000 person, 
you are because you are reacting to something you didn't like in the 1960s confession. And the 1960s Baptist faith and message was a reaction to some things that they didn't like in the 60s from the 1925 Baptist faith and message. So, I mean, it's... I think this is the problem where, I mean, if you're just reacting, then you're not actually being proactive and getting ahead of anything. And mm-hmm. that's, I, I, and historically, that's been the issue with why Baptists are not technically, you know, quote unquote, creedal people. Right. Um, because Baptists have historically said, well, we're people of the Bible and these human documents are fallible and <laughs> They may be able to tell us something, but they can't tell us everything and they can't speak to every situation. And, you know, uh, yeah, when, when then when you elevate a Baptist faith and message, you know, to a place where it's the lens through which we look at the Bible at some point, I think you're stepping away from what you were historically as a Baptist anyway. And I probably ought to stop mm-hmm. now before the train goes down the track. <laughs> oh, man. Well, and the. Okay, well, then I'll say the thing that I haven't said yet that would take a whole podcast to unpack, but not only does um, disfellowshipping people for um, abuse and and for having women in pastors equate the two things, which is a problem, but it also reveals, uh, it also seems quite contradictory. And um, I mean, I, I think... Scott, you alluded to this a bit that there has there was sort of this progress um, in caring for women in the churches, and then when we see something like this happen, it seems like it's undoing that progress. And that I would argue is because there's a connection between patriarchal views of women and leadership and the proliferation of and and cover up of abuse. There's mm-hmm. a connection between yeah. <laughs> these things, and that I mean that would take a whole other several podcasts to unpack but yeah. we, we can't ignore the the teachings about women in leadership and teachings about women in authority is directly connected to many of the ways these churches have mishandled abuse allegations um right. and we and we have evidence of that too and some patterns of some stuff that's come out recently about some churches that um where their leadership continually counseled women, um, you know, not to leave their abusers um, and those kinds of situations. And they did so using the same kind of scriptural support that many of these churches are using to justify not having women in leadership. And it's there. I mean, there's just connections, but to the way we teach these topics and the way human beings are being treated. And which, which is very, very problematic. And um, uh, just uh, officially, you know, I've, I've said this before, but, um, you know, I think that abuse is clearly a, you know, biblical ground for divorce. And when Jesus says, you know, unless there's marital unfaithfulness, you can't get divorced. You know, at the time he said that only men could divorce women. And he was saying what he said. And if she hasn't cheated on you, you can't leave her. That was a way of protecting women. Mm-hmm. And the principle mm-hmm. behind what Christ said was to protect the women who were in these situations. Yeah. And, um, so in today's culture, the theological principle is what do we need to do to protect women uh, based on what Christ said? And if they are in a position where they're being physically harmed, they need to get out of that. And right. there would be, I think, no reason whatsoever not to think that that would be biblical grounds for divorce. Um, in the same way, when it comes to churches, sort of to try to briefly uh maybe summarize some of that larger discussion. There's biblical complementarianism and there's biblical egalitarianism, Mm -hmm. and they are pretty close together, but either side left unchecked goes into a problematic area. So egalitarianism unchecked leads to um, elevating women, minorities, and others over others. It's almost like uh, uh, a a flip the script kind of thing where, sure. uh, you know, you go from going from patriarchal all the way to embracing more of like a matriarchal dominance. Um, on the flip side, when um, complementarianism is left unchecked, it often leads to authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And authoritarianism is not biblical. And it uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, essentially teaches, I mean, there have been teachings of authoritarian uh, patriarchal stuff 
in churches that are just kind of like, you know, women have to do everything their husband says, and they should be disciplined the same way that a parent disciplines a child. And you're like, um, no, that's, that's definitely false. That's not right mm-hmm. at all. And so there's a place that's biblical in the middle. And the thing for Baptists is that if they say scripture is our authority, scripture is our authority, then there has to be room for disagreement in areas where scripture is not clear or interpreted Mm -hmm. differently. I wrote a blog post a number of years ago and, uh, I had, I had someone call me and he said, I'm really concerned about this post you you've released because it sounds like it's out of sync with the Baptist faith and message. And I said, well, I don't think it is, but I'll hear you out. And he said, well, I'm concerned about blah, 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 you know? And uh, I said, well, you do realize that I supported my position with six passages of scripture, not six verses taken out of context, six passages of scripture taken in context to build this argument. And I said, so I don't think I've said anything out of line with the Baptist faith and message, but even if I had, I'm always going to side with scripture before siding with a document that is people's understanding or interpretation of scripture Mm -hmm. Uh, because we get our interpretations incorrect sometimes. And um, uh, again, it's, I mean, I think, like I said, I think I pretty well agree with the Baptist faith and message, but um, the fact of the matter is um, I'm always going to side with scripture and churches should always side with scripture. And part of Baptist having autonomy is for them being able to say, well, you know, overall, these are the things that we all agree on as Baptists, but there's got to be some room for uh, the autonomy part. And uh, that seems to be kind of what's missing, which makes you a little bit concerned for the direction things are going. Absolutely. There's a difference between right belief and right practice, or at least there's a dividing line between those two things, Mm -hmm. right? Right belief may have a pretty solid line. Um, right practice, you know that that can sometimes be shades of gray, and they're mm-hmm. they're not the same. And it's yeah, I retreading the tire. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> no, it's all good. Yeah. So uh, so today we've talked about a website that tries to help people make sense of scripture in a way uh, that is really designed for those who have heard the traditional answers to a lot of things and are left maybe confused or feeling like, and I'm not getting the response I need. Um, To put it differently, um, you know, I've, I've heard people go to their pastors with questions about why does the Bible say this? And the pastor say things like, well, you just have to believe it. Or I've heard the pastor say, well, you know, this is happening in your life. You should just pray about it. Or, you know, many people, how many people have had, you know, known someone who was suffering and we're told, well, if they didn't get healed, you just didn't have enough faith. You know, wow. I mean, there are ingrained teachings and practices that are unbiblical, but based on church traditions. And those traditions have reshaped how people have read scripture. And that's not to say all traditions are bad. I think a lot of our traditions are wonderful and certainly based in scripture, but not all of them. And so websites like the Bible for Normal People, uh, can really help, can help some. I think they can be confusing to some, uh, but I think they can help. And um, I, I've said this before too, but you know, there's there's a lot of value in reading good biblical scholarship. Um, you know, pick up a book from N.T. Wright, you know, mm-hmm. pick up a book on the history of Israel, and you'll realize that things are not always as black and white as we want them to be. And we have to learn to live in that tension and to as we as we work through the tension of scriptures find places where we're comfortable saying i don't have all this figured out but i have figured out enough to know that what it says is still trustworthy yep and yep. when it comes to churches as scott mentioned there's a there's a fine line between right belief and right practice uh, if your church has right beliefs but then does practices that don't correspond to those beliefs or should be antithetical to those beliefs, then you've got to throw up some red flags, whether that be disfellowshipping a church for a non-salvific issue, whether that be hiring someone back to work at a church who should not be allowed to work in the ministry at all, given that person's past, 
the of things that happened while they were in ministry. Um, and and these are difficult and messy situations. And you know, you can never come up with a solution that's going to satisfy everyone for any of these situations. But I think what you can do is you can look at your own life and you can say, okay, do my practices line up with my beliefs? Am I living authentically? And mm -hmm. as I'm learning about scripture, am I letting what I learn shape what I believe? And am I letting the way I believe shape how I live? Um, you know, I can't tell that church what to do, but I can say is for me, if I was at a church that hired someone like that, that would probably be my last day at that church yep. uh, because I'm in charge of myself and I can make decisions for myself, you know, in that, in that vein. And uh, ultimately everybody's responsible for their own actions and their own beliefs. And so I encourage you, if you're listening, study scripture, really study scripture, study the difficult things in scripture and look at good biblical scholarship for answers to those difficulties. Uh, if you have a question about something that's hard to, hard to understand in the Bible, you know, like, why did God send a bear to kill all those kids that were making fun of the bald prophet? You know, like, like that seems kind of harsh. Well, that's a good question. Figure out what biblical scholars are saying about that. Look at what the different views are and figure out how to live in the tension of us wanting righteousness and justice versus us wanting mercy and grace for everyone mm -hmm. and and figure out how to make that work and and be willing to live in maybe a not quite so black and white area with it. Mm -hmm. And if you're at a church that is, uh, you know, making decisions that are out of sync with what you think scripture teaches, then you have to ask yourself, is this the church where I need to be? Uh, or you might need to ask yourself, do I need to have a talk with someone? Do they not realize they're doing this? You know, perhaps there's an opportunity for you to be a change in that situation. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, if if you are um, having conversations or, uh, you know, in fellowship with others who may be outside the church or outside your denomination, and they have good, legitimate questions for you about what churches in your group are doing or uh, what beliefs your denomination holds to. Be ready to have those conversations, wrestle with their deep questions, and even be willing to say to them, if if it comes up, like, I don't have the answer to that. I'm going to have to go figure that out and get back with you. Uh, because people will appreciate you going and finding the right answer over just writing off their question or making something up on the mm -hmm. spot. So... Uh, that's sort of my quick summary for today. Um, Christine, Scott, thank you guys so much for being here on the podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, for those of you guys listening at home, it was kind of a messy podcast today because we dealt with messy issues. Uh, as it turns out, life is messy, uh, <laughs> but um, we get to we get to work through the mess together. And just as we've been doing here, I hope that you'll take the topics we discussed and Work through them in your own mind and with your own conversations with others over the next few days. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast.